Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. We welcome you to our service as we continue in our sermon series, Voices from the Wilderness, um, where we explore how all the Old Testament prophets continue to call uh, the people of God into a deeper holiness and into a deeper relationship with God. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about how there are certain barriers um, preventing us from walking into deeper holiness, such as our prejudices or even our idolatry of comforts. Um, but today we're going to be taking a look at what a holy life looks like from a biblical perspective and also what a holy life does not look like. Um, but to understand this, um, I want to first talk about the idea of relationships. Um, now, growing up during in high school, one of my friends, um, she had a dad who was um, a surgeon, incredibly you know, skilled, an absolutely tremendous surgeon. Um, and because of that, her family was also incredibly wealthy and they could pretty much just about purchase um, whatever in the world that they wanted. But however, there was a problem, right? The dad always had to go to work. He was always on call, even during holidays. And so unfortunately, my friend, she spent most of her life kind of growing up alone. Um, she didn't have any siblings. Her mom also worked. Um, so she spent most of her days at home. So to make up for the fact that neither parent is ever home, they would simply just lavish her with all these expensive gifts. Um, the parents thought that since they cannot display love by being there for their daughter, um, they might as well just kind of give her whatever her heart desires. And so this is crazy, you know, for us at least. So every school year, she literally had like a completely new wardrobe, all of her old clothes. I don't know what she did whether she threw it in a bonfire or whatever. But anyways, every, every, new, you know, every new year, she, had, she just had a completely new wardrobe. Um, her parents would buy her a bunch of designer bags, expensive perfumes. Her dad opened up a credit card for her to just you know, buy whatever she wanted. Um, and for us, you know, for us, the rest of us Brooklyn kids, you know, we we're pretty jealous. We're all broke. You know, we, we didn't have all these expensive things. But what always surprised us, or at least me, was that she never really flaunted it. She never showed off. I mean, she would dress incredibly well all the time, uh, but she wasn't very stuck up or arrogant about it, which surprised us. And one day we were just hanging out and, you know, we're just eating pizza. And she just started to share a little bit about the deeper problems of her life. Now, it was a while ago, so I don't remember her words exactly, um, but she confessed that basically she wished that she had actual parents. Um, sometimes her dad is so busy that he can't even personally present her the gift herself. She would just walk home and she'd just find a box on her bed or on the table. Um, during Christmas, sometimes he would always be missing, and sometimes she'd just sit alone for days at a time if the mom had a work trip as well. And I remember she telling us, she told us at least, she said this, some, something along these lines. She said, I don't care about these gifts. I don't even have a relationship with my parents. They just buy me things, but they don't know me. They don't know what I want. And we were all puzzled because in our foolish teenage minds, we thought like, what do you mean they don't know what you want? Like you have literally everything in the world. What else do you want? Like, did they buy you the wrong color car? Like, did you actually want a red car and not a blue car? And she replied to us like, no, I just want parents, like actual parents, like a mom and dad that are there for me, parents who listen to me. They're, they're just always so busy that they don't even have the time to scold me or reprimand me. And so when she finally spelled it out to us, we finally understood what she meant. And looking back, I, I realized two things. Well, first, despite her parents' best intentions, 
um, they have unfortunately failed at being a parent. They prioritized work over their own daughter and it came at a significant cost. And second, they have also failed to realize that love is not purchased. You can't have a proper genuine relationship with someone just by giving them things. And so as we turn to our passage today, we actually see a very similar situation, but in a different context. Like the parents who failed, we also find Israel who has also failed, but they have failed to be the proper children of God. And when God calls them back to him, they think that God's favor and love can simply be bought. Um, they don't fundamentally understand what kind of life God truly wants from them. And so with these themes in mind, um, let's just take a look at our passage today, which comes from Micah chapter six, uh, verses one to eight. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruits of my body, for the sins of my soul? But he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. As we dive into the first point of our sermon, um, we're actually witnessing or we're invited into an ancient courtroom in verses one to five. And our passage starts off with a very, in my opinion, at least with a very sad and touching scene where God appears before his people, the people of Israel, not necessarily as a judge, but as someone who is deeply hurt. And verse three, God directly turns to his people and he asks them this question, right? He says to them, my people, what? have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And this is really revealing to us because these are not the words of an impersonal God, right? These are the words of a father who is deeply hurt by his children's unfaithfulness. And for me, at least, it's, it's incredible for us to even consider what God is willing. Sorry, it's, it's for me, it's incredible for us to even consider that God is willing to speak from a place of pain, that God is willing to suffer the sting of rejection from those he loves, despite the fact that he can instantly recreate the universe if he so desired. He can instantly create a new faithful group of people if he desired, but he chooses instead to suffer the sting of unfaithfulness. And so by asking these questions, God is essentially asking his people, have I not been a good father? What have I done so wrong that you must treat me this way? And as God asks this, he then invites his people to remember, 
He reminds them of his acts of salvation. He reminds them of how he led them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and guided them throughout the wilderness. He reminds them of how he's turned every single curse into a blessing as they were trying to make it into the promised land. God wanted his people to remember his relentless love, his continual guidance, and his commitment to always be faithful to his own people. And yet... The people seem to have forgotten all of these acts of salvation and their spiritual amnesia, right? The people of God have forgotten who was the one who walked them through the desert. They have forgotten who was the one who led them into the promised land. And so by forgetting, not only do they have they lost sight of God's saving acts, but they have lost sight of God himself. They don't even know him. They can't even see him anymore. And often when I read these verses in the Old Testament, you know, I, I always ask myself, like, man, why can't these Israelites, why can't they just get it together, right? What's so hard? Just, just be faithful to God, right? Just do what he commands. But then God, of course, always redirects the question back to me. Brandon, have you been faithful to me? And I think sometimes we can be too wrapped up or so wrapped up in our own desires, our own struggles, that we forget that God has been with us this entire time that God has been leading us, protecting us, and providing for us throughout our entire lives. Like the Israelites, we too can forget the times where God has carried us through trials or moments in life where the only thing that sustained sustained us was his peace. The deep tragedy is that when we forget God, we end up looking elsewhere in life to solve our problems. We look elsewhere to find joy. We end up trading our God for something else, whether that be our careers, our relationships, or even our own selfish desires. We replace the infinite and eternal love of God with fleeting moments of pleasure, temporary achievements, and these hollow self-assurances that we think make us happy. And as we begin to realize that we have fallen deeply into this trap, we come to quickly realize that we have not been faithful to God. So what are we supposed to do? Once we find ourselves in this situation, how do we finally, how how are we able to turn 180? How do we demonstrate faithfulness back to God? Let's turn back to our passage and let's look at first, what is one way that does not necessarily please God? And if we take take a look at verses six to seven, we see that the people of Israel, they respond back to God by saying this, right? They say, with what shall I come before the Lord? So you see that there's a desire for them to at least come back to God. And so what do they say? How do I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruits of my body for the sins of my soul? And through these two verses, we get a glimpse into the Israelites' mindsets. In their confusion and in their desperation, they thought that God's love can simply be purchased. They believed that God's faithfulness can be won with offerings and sacrifices or that they can bargain with God. And if you look at the verse, you, you actually see that their desperation like grows increasingly by the amount that they, that they would give, right? First, it was a calf, then it was 10,000 rams, then it was 10,000 rivers of olive oil. And finally, the ultimate sacrifice, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, was a sacrifice of your own child. But the fact of the matter is that not only have they forgotten God's faithfulness, but they have also forgotten what God desires. They've forgotten that God values the heart more than rituals. 
And this is a similar, this is a similar story to the one I gave earlier with my friend who was showered with all these lavish gifts by her absent parents. The parents thought that by increasing the number of expensive gifts, they could compensate for their absence. They could compensate for their lack of genuine parental love and care. But just like my friend's parents, the Israelites were also missing the point entirely. You can't buy love. You cannot buy a genuine relationship with material things. And you certainly can't buy God's love with offerings and sacrifices. Now, don't get me wrong. These rituals and offerings, they were very important in the Old Testament since God instituted these for a reason to begin with. These were the ways that people of Israel could express their devotion and love to God in a way for them to atone for their sins. But what the people of Israel failed to understand was that God never intended these rituals and offerings to replace a heart that seeks him. It's not meant to replace a heart that loves justice, a heart that walks humbly before the God. And so for the Israelites, these offerings essentially became empty rituals, just like the empty gifts my friend received. They might be impressive to others, but they lacked the true substance that God yearned for. God didn't want rivers of olive oil or thousands of rams. God wanted their hearts. And I think this is important for us to remember too. Um, I often ask our youth group back then at least, why do you guys come here? on Friday night. And today I turn the question back to us. Why are we here at church? Have we fallen into the trap of thinking that our outward actions will win God's love? That by coming to church every Sunday, volunteering in ministries, praying regularly or reading the Bible, that somehow through these actions, we can earn God's love and affection for us. Have we fallen into that trap? And the thing is, these are all good practices. These are all practices I encourage you to do. But at the end of the day, are we just checking off boxes? Is our hearts really in the right place as we perform these rituals? And so as we reflect on this, let's not forget that no amount of religious rituals and activities can ever replace a genuine relationship with God. He doesn't want us to hide behind our religiosity and avoid confronting our own shortcomings and our need for him. And so while the Israelites, they should have, you know, they were asking the question, you know, like, what can I give God? That's the entirely wrong question. The true question that they should have been asking themselves is what does God desire from us? And so what does God desire from us? Ultimately, God desires a heart that mirrors his own. And if we look at the three things that God asks us to do, in the final verse of our passage, we see that we see, actually see that it's a reflection of God's own heart. We're called by God to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. First, God's call for us to act justly. This is more than actually, this is actually more than just an instruction. More importantly, this is a reflection of who God is. God is the ultimate judge. God is the righteous king, the one who always does what is just and fair. God doesn't just act justly. God is justice itself. And so when we are called to act justly, it is actually a call for us to align our hearts with God's and to see and to respond to the world as God responds to the world. To live and to act justly is to make God's priorities our own priorities. 
And so as we look throughout the entire Bible, what are examples of justice in the Old Testament? What do we see God doing as this just God? We see a God who stands up for the oppressed. We see Yahweh who hears the voice of the slaves in Egypt and he brings them up out of it. Yahweh is the God who is God, sorry, Yahweh is the God who is a voice for the voiceless as he defends those who are silenced by those in power. And so as we act justly, we begin to imitate God's own justice in the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. And as we imitate God's justice, we begin to observe that our lives begin to change as well. Next, we're also told to love mercy. And just like justice, it, again, it's more than just a command, but it's also another reflection of God's own heart and character. Our God is a God who continues to forgive us even when we repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. Our God is the God who continues to be faithful to us, even though we are unfaithful to him. And without a doubt, we ultimately see God's mercy through Jesus Christ. He could have stayed in heaven for all eternity. He could have allowed us to receive the consequences of our sins and of our actions, but instead he came to us, he took on our punishments, and ultimately he died for our sins, so that all of us may be called the children of God. And so when God calls us, his people, to love mercy, it's not just about being nice to others, but it's to allow God's mercy to permeate every single aspect of our lives. It means to graciously offer forgiveness to others. It means to actively love our enemies. It means to reconcile ourselves with others rather than trying to permanently separate ourselves from them. And we do all of this. Why? Because God has done it first for us by demonstrating love and mercy to us while we were still his enemies. And so finally, we talked about justice. We talked about mercy. The final thing we're called to do is to walk humbly with our God. And to walk humbly with our God means that we first have to let go. Uh, we have to let go of being the masters of our own lives. We have to let go of everything that we put above God. We have to let go of our old pattern of lifestyle that we have lived. And as we let go of these things in its place, we are invited to experience something far superior. We're invited to walk with God, just like Adam who once walked with God in the garden or the disciples who walked with Jesus, we are once again invited to live life with God, to learn from him, to enjoy his presence. We are invited to walk alongside God as he gives us guidance in our physical and our spiritual lives. And so for us as the people of God, these are the things that God ultimately desires from us. This is what it means to live a holy life. And we do this not because it's something that we're forced to do to earn his love, but because these are the things that are the reflection of God's being. These are the things that God desires for himself. And so as we're about to end our sermon, and as we're about to move into a period of prayer, I want us to reflect on what it means to be transformed into Christ-likeness. Let us reflect on the depth of what it means when scripture tells us that God has removed our hearts of stone and replaced it instead with hearts of flesh. So why don't we come together um, as one body and come before the Lord in prayer? So let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, um, we confess before you that despite the fact that we change, that you know our hearts tug left and right, um, we acknowledge, Lord, that you do not. You don't desire the same thing. Sorry, we don't desire the same things that you do. And we have often turned our lives from you. As we, and as we reflect on it, Father, we realize that these things that we chased after, they don't actually give us fulfillment in life. And so, Father, uh, we have turned from you. And so today, Father, we ask you to bring us back to you. So allow us to walk with you once again, to have your guidance in our lives. And Father, we confess that, honestly, we, we have nothing to give you. What can we give to you that you have not created? You hold all things in your hand. What do you desire that you cannot have? So help us, Lord, to give you our whole lives. Plant within us a new heart that desires you. Give us a heart that values what you value. Give us a heart that is joyful for what you are joyful for. Father, today, let us recommit our lives to you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for life everlasting. And ultimately, we thank you for your unconditional love. We love you and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray, amen.